Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. Today, I have Steve Norman, who is the author of Future Proof Sales Strategy and founder of Growth Acumen. He is an international sales manager of many years, scar tissue, and has been around the houses. He's failed many times and learned from those failures in order to succeed. Steve, would you mind giving a quick introduction to how you got to where you are? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Marcus. Real pleasure to be on the show and uh, really looking forward to a no-holds-barred discussion and, uh, yeah, definitely carrying a lot of scar tissue and failures and uh, we have to learn from that. So, so for me, pretty much 30 years in sales leadership and general management roles, mostly in the tech industry, I was Dell's first account executive in Asia-Pacific. That was back in uh, 1993. I had some sales experience before then, but I was the first AE here in Australia. And uh, I stayed with Dell for 13 years from those humble beginnings to it being a multi-billion dollar business over here. And uh, during that time, you know, I had different roles. Like I was the head of marketing for all of Asia Pacific. I was the president of the business in Korea. I set up the business in India. I was part of the team that, you know, took the business into China. And you had a lot of different experiences there. And then after then, for, for nine years, I was based in Hong Kong, managing the Targus operation up there for Asia Pacific. So I had a couple of hundred people across the region. And yeah, lots of different channels, lots of different verticals we were in. And then I came back to Australia a couple of years ago and really didn't want to go back into corporate if I could avoid it and decided to uh, carve out a little niche as a consultant, helping B2B companies improve their sales performance. And um, you know, if I look back in my career at what I got the biggest kick out of, it was helping people. You know, it was helping people develop themselves, develop their careers, developing leaders. And uh, yeah, that's what I'm doing now. You know, I'm helping country managers, sales leaders, sales VPs, general managers to improve their team, improve themselves, have a better business and a better life. On that note, because that, that's an interesting career and also a fairly illustrious one. On that note, I know that you feel that it's important that managers are career coaches for their people. Talk to me about how you came to that realization, because I think a lot of managers, when I was in headhunting, mm. what I found really refreshing was whenever I would recruit in Scandinavia, I would phone up the manager of a team and say, who in your team would be good for this job, even if it was in a competitor? And right. they would tell me. And I know that's kind of not quite, maybe not quite as far as you would go, but helping people to develop their career, even if it's outside of the company. Yeah. When did you come to that realization? And Look, why? I came across it by accident. I realized in a couple of scenarios where someone had proactively come to me and said, Hey, Steve, I want to get to the next level. I want to get from you know, being a, you know, a sales rep to being a manager, or I want to get into marketing after this sales job. And just by me, Taking a couple of very simple actions on their behalf, like setting up a mentorship with someone who would help them with the new skills or giving them a project that would stretch them into that new role, that would be a path into that, that other role. I just saw so much productivity from those people. And I thought, gee, I'm really onto something here, right? So it's sort of something you're meant to do. You know, if you're in a big company, you know, they've got these processes for performance planning, career planning, but you know, very few people take it seriously. 
But I found it was very powerful. If you did just one or two key actions for someone in a year, just picked up the phone to the marketing director and said, hey, could you mentor Joe for the next six months? Joe would all all of a sudden give you 150% commitment. And then if you were taking care of people's best interests, and like you mentioned, like I didn't mind if people, if their best path was into another department or even outside the company in some cases, I would proactively help them get there. And I built a, a reputation as someone that took care of talent and developed talent. And what that meant was I started attracting talent from the other functions or even from other companies into our companies. So it paid me back in spades, taking that career coach philosophy. It's interesting. I had a meeting yesterday with a startup company that specializes in helping using both neuroscience and great coaching and behavioral stuff to help people prepare either for a job if they're going for interview or to career develop. And it helps people, CEOs and leaders, have a dashboard of sentiment within their business on in real time across their executive leadership team, across the middle management. And it gives a real barometer of how people are feeling. And what's fascinating about that is the increase in production and the ability to get ahead of a problem so that you can prevent the wrong type of turnover. If someone's thinking about leaving, you can identify that well in advance and recognize it so that you can take action to prevent it. Because we both know how expensive a wrong hire is, uh, but the loss of top talent is excruciatingly expensive, and they'll often go with your best customers. Uh, Any thoughts on that? I always say what we call an empty seat in a sales team is the crime, and we just should never let that happen. If someone's going to move out of my team, I want it to be on my terms, on my timing. And we've got to have the radar up for the early warning signs if there's some systemic issues or even a specific issue with a key person, right? And our key talent, well, everyone, we need to manage people individually, right? So like my example in the career coaching, we don't just treat everyone the same. Everyone's got different goals. Everyone's in a different place of where they want to get to in their career. Not everyone wants to become a VP or the head of the department. Some people are looking for better work-life balance. You know, they're, they're looking for different hours. They're looking for a different location. We need to be very tuned into that. And I think if we're doing that, we can actually help people overcome short-term issues. Because let's say everyone's a bit unhappy because the commission plan changed. Or everyone's a bit unhappy because the company's not so competitive for a couple of quarters. We're waiting for a product cycle to turn. If you're not managing your people well for the long term and have their interests at heart, when you hit those bumps, they're going to leave. But if you can establish that longer term, more personal connection, more individual connection, they're going to stick with you through those difficult times. It's interesting you say that you should never have an empty chair. I do have a client who has uh, had to, has inherited a sales team. And the question he always asks is, is he better than an empty chair? After some soul searching, sometimes the answer is no. Well, that, that, that could be true to it. That could be true. And I don't mean I just want a warm body in that seat. 
because you know, just a warm body is the wrong approach. That's, that's, that's going to cost us long term. I know that you and I both share a philosophy that the manager should always be building the bench and have a strong pipeline <laughs> of quality candidates waiting in the wings for every key position. Yeah. What's your advice in terms of predictive hiring and taking people through the process of establishing a good bench of candidates? Sure. Let me tell you a short story. So in my last sort of serious corporate job, so I was managing Targus, the laptop case manufacturer and an accessory company across Asia Pacific. And I had a couple of hundred people, maybe 80 or 90 of the people were salespeople. Okay, so in a year, even uh, running the team well, you're going to have 15% turnover probably. And in Asia, a lot of Asian countries where the market's very sort of fast and moving all the time, you could have 25% turnover even if you're doing a decent job, right? So you've got to expect we've got to hire 15, 10 to say 10 to 20 people in a year. And I want to plan for that. So my first meeting of every week was with my HR director. We met at 9 a.m. every Monday, and we proactively worked on our bench, our outside bench. We also had an inside bench, but we had headhunters on retainer. And I spent definitely a few hours a week just interviewing bench, even if I didn't have a specific role. Good. Right? Really good. So I would always have three or four or five warm candidates and I'd try and tune, you know, through that weekly meeting and through being in touch with the team, you sort of know where your sensitive areas might be. There might be some warning sign, you know, someone's, you know, going, has talked to you or someone's not performing and you, you can sort of forecast maybe they're on the way out. And I always want to have that, that, that bench ready. And then you've got time to do it on your own terms, possibly. Maybe even if you meet someone really good, you'll create a position for them. Absolutely. Right? If you meet a superstar who got, you know, jumps all the hurdles from one of your key competitors and he can come in and bring a bunch of business or accounts or a, you know, a country, let's make it happen. You know, Let's try and fit it in the budget and try and get the upside. One thing that really frustrates me is that I hear all the time, oh, they need experience in our marketplace. They need experience of our our type of product. But great salespeople don't need experience in your market. And what fascinates me is this fixation with skills, experience, and historical results, all of which are lag indicators uh, that say Steve may have been good once, but they don't tell me whether he was lucky, carried, or burnt out. Or just happen to be at the right place. No, I, I agree. I, I don't get it too much. It's, it's sort of like an easy sell for the headhunters. And they're just all in that same rut, aren't they? Of, oh, you need someone for, okay, in my case, let's say we're looking for someone selling into New South Wales government, selling a SaaS solution for records management. The headhunter will go and try and find someone with, the, with that exact role in their history somewhere. And that'll be an easy sell to the sales manager. But it, like you're indicating and uh, like, a, like I really believe, it's really who knows why they were successful in that last role. They might have had a low target. Someone before them might have set up all the deals and they just closed them. They might have had some tremendous product advantage. 
it's a pretty risky proposition. So I think we've really got to look at, okay, what are their innate characteristics? We want to be testing them. You know, we want to be looking at the specific role and, and the sort of strengths we're looking for. What do you look for in terms of predictors of success? It depends on the role, doesn't it? You know, and if you're looking at a account management role versus a hunting role, large accounts versus you know, more transactional accounts, it's very different. And uh, we really need to nail down the job spec. And, and very few people are doing this or their job spec's five years old. So it's cut and paste is the favourite job description process. Yeah, exactly. It just doesn't produce good results. Like we know around half of sales hires fail. It usually takes 12 to 18 months to sort of realise that and take action on it, and there's a tremendous cost to our business. So the way most people are doing it, trying to cookie-cutter people in, cut and pasting JDs just doesn't work. So we have to have a much more structured approach. And how do most interviews go, Marcus? 99% of interviews are very casual, unstructured interviews where the sales manager meets the candidate. Even the poor salesperson is very capable of building rapport and say, oh, Marcus, yeah, I, I know the CIO in um, Department of Roads in, in New South Wales. And I know this guy, I know this one, and oh yeah, I do. Oh, that that's great. Yeah, I know them too. And you know, before you know it, they're talking about different topics and comfortable, and getting led by the nose. And we're not uncovering anything about that person's real character or their real capabilities. So I really recommend that we structure our interviews specifically around the JD and the things that we're looking for. We dig into those. We look for examples, and. Then I want to do independent testing as well because it's very hard to uncover in an hour's discussion what that person's really like. Do they really have the innate personality and characteristics that we're looking for? A couple of the things that we teach. First of all, an interview should never be a pleasant experience for the candidate. Mm. You should put them under pressure because the person they become under pressure is the one that you're going to end up with. And if you don't do that, I think it's a good point. Yeah. They're in front of some gnarly, hairy ass CFO who's going to kick them around, ask shitty, horrible questions, and take no yeah. guff, and they cave, then that's a disaster waiting to happen. Next, recruit for habit. What people do repeatedly in the past, they will do repeatedly in the future. So if they're whining, mm. blaming, excuse making, prospecting, avoiding, are scratching a nose picker. I guarantee that's what they will be on your payroll. And my calculation on this is for an enterprise salesperson, it will cost you somewhere between 35 and 125 times salary to make that wrong hire. Now, that is basically the price of a developing country's GDP. Yeah, sure. Recruitment is the single most important function any manager has, bar none. It's not a chore. It's not something to be done reactively. So like you said, build the bench. Recruitment is a daily activity. Our research on this is depressing. A players come around half a percent, one in 200. Good B players, somewhere between six and 12 in 200. So you've got a three to 6% probability of finding a good B player 
And the rest are that middle layer of mush and people who can barely wipe their own bottom or breathe unaided. Because what passes for average in sales is not great. It's depressing. And next year, based on the research Jonathan Farrington is doing, it looks like somewhere between 42 to 43% of salespeople will actually make quota, which means that 57 to 58% will not. Now, when you're thinking about the cost, the opportunity cost, the cost of recruitment, the cost of onboarding, the cost of uh, training them, the money that they burn in terms of going through uh, leads that they will never convert that could have converted, the business that they basically leave on the table for your competition, the repeat business, the referral business, the upsell, the cross-sell, that is way too important a decision to leave to chance or to do randomly and do crappy, unstructured interviews where basically yeah. you hire in your own image, only weaker because you don't want to be threatened. Sorry, that was a wrap, wasn't it? Marcus, what sort of makes it worse is the more experienced the manager, the more they back their own gut feeling. Oh, yeah. They think I'm more experienced, I can pick them, I know, I don't need any of that sort of you know testing and stuff. I can eyeball someone. It's really a huge overconfidence that, that's not warranted. It's a confederacy of dunces. That confirmation bias you've touched on there, absolutely yep. crazy. Let's yep. talk a little bit about codifying your sales process because, again, one of the things that we see managers do is wing the interview. The other thing we see is salespeople wing the sales process where basically they show up and throw up, quote and hope, sell and run. And their idea of selling is worse than order taking. Um, mm. So they basically turn up, talk about themselves, show photos of the ugly kid, and expect oh. the strangers to welcome it, and then wonder why 83% of first meetings never result in a second meeting. So I'd be curious about your views on codifying the sales process. Yeah, absolutely. And uh Sales process is different by company, by industry, by product, and it's really important to understand what works. Who are you targeting? Are you targeting marketing managers? Are you targeting HR managers, IT managers, CEOs, general managers in specific industries? What are the challenges and priorities for people that we're targeting with our solutions? What are the trends in those industries? So I think we really start there, and from there, we start to build, okay, what will work as an approach or prospecting strategy with those people? What messages work from our history and our data and studying what our best salespeople have done? Can we bottle that? Can we codify that? And same as we go through the the sales process, we're getting into discovery and qualification. How do we best do that? with our customers, with our solution. And this doesn't mean we are not appreciative of sales talent or we don't want the best sales talent, we, but we get the best sales talent through a hiring process. We put them into our system, our machine, and we're giving them the best chance of success. Failure rates, just throwing people in, thinking someone got good results in another company throw them in, give them a list of customers, give them some product training and think they're going to work it out for themselves and work out the best way to sell to our customers. It's really fanciful and it doesn't work. So 
I love football or soccer, and I'm a huge fan of Barcelona. Barcelona, they do get some great talent, right? Messi, they had Neymar, Luis Suarez, these great talents. But they actually, they play in a system, and Barcelona's system has been the same you know, for the last 30 years at least. It starts in their academy, La Reza, and they play a certain way. They play a 4-3-3. They do this uh, tiki-taka passing. Their wing-backs attack. They have this uh, front three trident. They have the defensive midfielders. They have the creative midfielders. And they've got a, a really codified way that they play. But you still have your star players still fit well into that and can still shine. So we really need both. We want to have our codified system. We want to get star players. And your sales is a tough game. This market is not getting any easier. Like you mentioned, fewer people making target. We really need to line all of our ducks up in a row to have our best chance of success. Well, this is really interesting. I think you've touched on a number of points I'd like to build on. Yeah. First of all, systems set you free. For the first 17 years of my very, very mediocre sales career, I pushed against systems and constraint and structure because I thought it uh, restricted my creative juices. Mm. The reality Mm. is within the system, you can be as creative as you like. And that's how the messies are able to perform at their best because there is that constraint. I did a very half-assed job of doing some stand-up comedy last year. Okay. What I found was the constraint of the rules around how to write a joke, how to set it up, how to deliver the punchline, Mm. improved the humor because what I wasn't doing was rambling and going off on my own, and there was a structure that the audience could get to grips with. So when I did finally perform, it wasn't so bad. I mean, I got a few more ripples and even some of the products, which was cool. But again, I suspect I still have a lot of work to do. Another point is product training is not sales training. If you're listening today, understand this. Product training used too early in the sale is lethal, okay? Talking about your ugly kid to a stranger before you have diagnosed that they need a solution to a particular problem is selling malpractice. And what you do is you create in the prospect's mind a little tick box that says, oh, if I ever need that, I can go and speak to Steve. And the problem is that no one in the history of humanity has ever bought product. What they do is they buy a fix to their problem. And what they're looking for is an improved future, which your product may be one solution to solve. A couple of other things that you raised, which I'm really pleased that you did, is preparation. I firmly believe that sales managers have four functions. Hire the best people get the best out of them, make sure they have the tools and resources they need to do their best work every day and protect them from your idiot bosses. That means getting the best out of them means that they need to do written pre-call plans. They need to go in with a plan, not wing it. Then you as the manager need to spend time rehearsing them. Now, you've got a lot of pushback because a lot of salespeople say, oh, I don't like role play, blah, blah, blah. Don't care. If they're not willing to practice, then get them the hell out of your team. Right. They have no place to be there. And practice perfectly. Perfect practice makes perfect. Mm. Half-assed practice does not. And then when you come out, learn the lessons. Do a post-call debrief in writing and then verbally. 
make sure you capture the lesson so you improve your process. And another key area that I would urge people to get involved in is pre-mortems, particularly where you're doing a large deal. Make sure that you're sat down with your salespeople and your AEs and your best technical people and marketing and anybody else who's likely to be involved in a complex sale and do a pre-mortem. It's the day after the outcome has been announced. And the challenge here is that what we want is to identify why we did not win that deal. Now, if we didn't win that deal, why not? Let's plan ahead so that we can mitigate against that. And too often... What you're saying, um, before you've been notified that you've won or lost. Three months before the deal's been announced, you're planning this. You're Mm. working out, why would it go wrong? What do we need to do in order to prevent that from happening? A great analogy here is uh, traditional Chinese doctors. Traditional Chinese doctors get paid when you are well. When you're sick, they pay for your medicines and your treatment. Absolutely, absolutely. I think that's a good analogy with the Chinese doctor. And also, I I like what you said about working in a box. And uh, when I worked in Dell, we worked in very tight boxes. And we had to be really creative within that because our P&Ls were measured against everyone running that same type of business everywhere in the world. So if I was managing an enterprise sales team, my P&L and my sales productivity, my attach rates, all of my numbers, my margins, everything was compared globally. And whoever had the best number in any metric, that became the standard, that became the best practice we all had to strive to. And it really did limit, it really did limit what you could do because you're working this tight box and you just had to be, you had to be creative and it is good to be restricted sometimes. So I can definitely relate to that. Let's move on to one thing I loved about your book was this concept of MOFU. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, middle of funnel. So call it MOFU. And I believe it's the most important part of the sales process and most overlooked. So we have our prospecting in the beginning. We have our closing, gaining commitment at the end. And in the middle is middle of funnel. And prospecting is like the shiny object of the sales world. Everyone's talking about prospecting. Everyone's talking about cold calling, warm calling. Everyone's focused on new business as well. Instead of really focusing on the profit, they're focused on the glamour. Yes. Exactly. And, and there is this glamour about, yeah, yeah, about prospecting. Like I think new business is good and we, we still have MOFU and we have do proper discovery and qualification with new business. But there's so much attention on prospecting and I just see so much noise about that. And then in, in sales organisations, once something's in the funnel, once it's been prospected, opportunity identified, most sales organisations move into a closing motion. And the sales manager is saying, has that deal closed yet? What do we need to do to close it? It's in the funnel. Like, when can it close? There's a huge focus around closing. Whereas in my mind, the biggest part of the sales process should be the middle. And I say we need to slow down to sell faster. Absolutely. Slow down to speed up. Slow down to speed up here. And if we slow down in the middle part of the funnel, okay, we've identified an opportunity we're going to do much better. Marcus, I had a, a client recently 
I did a loss review with them. They requested me to come in and they were very, very upset. They'd lost a, a $6 million deal with this account. They've been working on it for 10 months and they could not understand why they lost this deal. And in the last six weeks of that deal, the customer went completely dark and popped out at the end and said, we've decided to stay with our incumbent. And I stepped through with them and it became apparent very quickly where they'd gone wrong. They were telling me they did everything the customer asked. (laughs) Customer asked for product information. They they delivered it the next day. Customer asked for some uh, profiling of their users. They went and did that for them. Customer asked them for recommendations on configurations and support models. Customer asked them for information about their service capabilities and remote locations. And, and they did all this work, tons of work. They were very responsive to everything the customer asked them. And that was the problem. That was the problem. They gave the customer everything very early. They gave the customer the pricing early. And the customer didn't need them anymore. And the customer didn't have to give much up to get all of that intelligence. This is a really important point. An educated prospect is no prospect at all. Your job is not to educate your prospect. Your job is to gather information and qualify them yes. to see whether or not they qualify for a presentation. But salespeople, for some ludicrous reason, have not cottoned on to the fact that until they qualify, you do not present. And the trap they fall into is free consultancy, which is exactly what you're describing. Yeah, that, that's what happened here. And we know this, you know, this statistic, 47% of deals ending in no decision. Of course, that's because so many salespeople are chasing these dead deals all the way to the end. And they're not qualifying properly. They're not running proper discovery. They're not building business cases. It's a big challenge. We teach a rule. Never turn up unless you know why you're turning up. Never agree to leave unless you know why you're leaving and why you're going to come back. Never agree to leave unless you know who does what by when. And when you come back, make sure you agree up front why you're there and what's going to happen at the end. And the problem is that salespeople are afraid of asking tough questions. They're attached to the outcome. They're worried about not being liked. If you want to be liked, do not, under any circumstances, get into sales. If you want to be liked, join the Samaritans, buy a puppy, but do not end up in sales. It is a full contact blood sport. It's a place where conflict is inevitable. And if you're not confident and comfortable with conflict, constructive conflict, then you have no place in sales. Yeah, it's a battle. If we think about a call plan, we should have clear objectives in the call, right? And yeah, yep. we want information. We want to know what their plan is. We want to know who's involved in the decision. We want to know budget. We want to know the, the business benefit. Yeah, there's a ton of things we want. Customer also wants things. Customer wants all well, this free consulting. They want product information, service information, pricing, industry insights, ideas on how they can do things better. And they want to get all of that and give away as little as possible about what we want, right? Absolutely. <laughs> so we've got to realize that. When we're dealing with large, complex sales, well, the customers aren't dummies. And it's going to be, there could possibly be some friction there. And 
I want the customer pulling on me, Marcus. I want the customer asking me for more information. I want the customer asking me about the next step because I'm not going to be giving that away very easily in the call. I'm going to be turning things around back to, I'm not sure if we can help or not. What are you hoping to get get out of this? You know, what's your current situation? You know, we've got to keep turning things around and back to the customer. And the customer may ask, yeah, okay, do, do you have a product that can do this? Some salespeople will just launch into how good their product is and all the features and how it can solve their problem. You know, they think that's consultative selling. But we need to say more like, yeah, we definitely have a product that can do that. We've done it for you know, a lot of similar companies to yours. Can you tell me what you're looking for once you've implemented that? What will the, the business benefit be? Or if you don't do it, what will happen? You know, what's the cost if you don't do anything here? Like, is there really a case here? We give them something. We can give them a short answer, but don't give everything away. You talk about the qualification process and the various steps that are involved, uncovering, diagnosing the problem, uncovering budget and their budget process, uncovering the decision process, uncovering the cast of characters in the buying committee. I had a really interesting uh, coaching conversation with a couple of my clients. They've been working on this deal for some time. And the CISO, the Chief Information Security Officer, has just come in from another company and he used their competitor's product in his previous incarnation. But what they hadn't really thought through was how to ring fence the deal because their local sponsors love their product. And this guy has been parachuted in from a much bigger company. And so he's got a lot of cachet and they're afraid to stand up to him. But I think our job as salespeople, particularly where we're dealing with complex sales, is that we need to earn that position of trusted advisor. And we need to arm our sponsors, our coaches, with the ability to challenge thinking, even when the heavy artillery has been brought in by the competition or it sponsors the competition. And what we did was we looked at some really simple stuff. So, for example, the total cost of ownership over five years is $10 million more. And mm. um, it costs somewhere between 35 and 45% more in full time employees to run the competitor's product on top of that extra uh, total cost of ownership. And so there's an opportunity cost. Now, the salespeople hadn't thought about turning procurement into their ally. They could have gone to, to and so it, we're working on this at the moment. So it might still be salvageable, but they should be speaking to procurement and saying, guys, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but if you compare apples with apples, you're going to be 10 million down and you're going to have to have something like five additional employees on payroll mm. working exclusively to maintain this particular product for no added value in terms of the level of security that it will offer. And at the same time, a parallel streak where their CEO should be talking to the CISO, yep. the CFO. Yep. Um, and possibly the CTO as well, uh, taking that message to them as well so that they can neutralize it and say, look, appreciate that you might want to go with the competition. Let me tell you why that might be a strategic error. Mm. You've got to be a couple of things there, right? Like often salespeople get tunnel vision and they're focused on the people that they're working with and they're dealing with and that they sort of can be blind 
to other things going on or other opportunities to influence the account. And we need to be flexible with our strategy. You know, okay, we, we have a great plan, a great account plan. Things on the ground can change like, like, like you're describing and maybe we have to take a different route. And we want salespeople not to get too stuck in the weeds. We want them to step back and, and be a bit strategic as well. You, you, you've got to like go, go between being strategic and being the foot soldier on the ground. I think this comes back down to an issue around self-concept. A lot of salespeople do not see themselves as their prospects equal. They don't see themselves as having equal business stature with everybody Mm. within the prospect organization. And as a result, what they do is they put the prospect on a pedestal. And the moment you do that, you give away your power. If you give away your power, then you've automatically fallen into the buyer's system. And the buyer's system is very smart. The traditional selling system is qualified loosely for money, authority, and need. Then show up and throw up and feature and benefit the poor buggers to death. Then trial close and then handle objections. And then follow up in the form of a proposal or proof of concept or quote or, or information or whatever. Meanwhile, the buyer has a system as well. And their system, Napoleon said it really well. God is on the side of the bigger guns. Whoever has the better system wins. And the buyer system goes like this. They lie to you to get you to come in to spill your guts. Then they steal from you because they want to know what you know, but they don't want to pay you for it. Then they lie to you again in the form of misleads, such as objections, higher authority, stalls, smoke screens, and other forms of obfuscation. And then they disappear off the face of the planet like they've been abducted by aliens or gone into witness protection. They hide. And if that happens to you, that's your fault. You have not controlled the sale. As a salesperson, it is your responsibility to control the sale. The buyer must control the decision. And if you interfere with that dynamic, then chances are you will get run over, uh, you'll be ridden over roughshod. You'll end up chasing people, 47% of your deals will end up in no decision. 83% of your first meetings will never result in a second meeting. And then you will spend your life grumbling and complaining. And you will be spending 30% APR on buying groceries because you can't afford to pay out your salary and your commission. And you'll be buying coffee on your credit card and paying it off 18 years later at 30% APR. And that's the loss of most average salespeople. I put this very firmly back down to the managers, not helping them to manage the middle of the funnel. The dull, mundane stuff, the proper job of a salesperson is to fill the funnel with good quality prospects, drive those opportunities through the pipeline with sufficient velocity that they don't get constipated at any point. And you don't end up with a Kim Kardashian or a Dolly Parton kind of sales funnel. Yes. Sure, the middle of the funnel is absolutely clean and you're moving opportunities from qualified to closable and you've got a volume of 300 to 500% moving from qualified to closable more than you need to hit your quota. So if you're on a million pound quota, then you need 3 million to 5 million pounds at the qualified stage moving into closable in order to give you that contingency. And the waiting system is really important as well. A suspect, basically anyone who can fog a mirror, does not go into forecast or pipeline, and that's 0%. A prospect goes in at 10%, 
And our definition of a prospect is in your target market has a pain you can genuinely fix today. You're speaking to decision makers who are willing and able to make the decision to buy. You're speaking to decision makers who are willing and able to invest the time, the money, the resources, and give you access to all the information and people you need to do your qualification. And they're working towards an acceptable and agreed timeframe to make Mm -hmm. their decision. That's 10%. Qualified prospect meets those five conditions and 70% of your questions have been answered. And that goes in at 30% weighting. And then a closable prospect meets all five of those conditions. 100% of your questions have been answered by the entire committee. And that goes in at 95%. Mm. Then you do that, the forecasting accuracy goes to between half and 5% variance. I like it a lot. <laughs> like, like Just a little structure I'd like to share, Marcus, with everyone that, that I think is useful because we're talking about a lot of things here. And that there's, there's a lifetime of learning in the middle of the funnel. But if I could just simplify with like one sort of um, structure or framework that might help. So often we're thinking we're doing the right thing. We're thinking maybe we're, we're going slowly and we're working with the customer and we're asking the customer, okay, what's the next step in your process? And then what's the next step after that? And, and so forth. And this is one way to qualify. I might ask salespeople to look at it a little bit differently. Don't ask them about the next step. Let's talk about the end. Let's talk and try and put a stake in the ground about when they're expecting and when they need to get business benefit from the solution and try and establish that stake in the ground. Okay, so we need to have this system in in February 2020. Okay, okay, that's a good starting point. Then, Then we should be qualifying that. So why do you need it in by then? What's happening? How compelling is that? And maybe it's got to be something like, okay, the license on our current solution finishes by then or support for that system is finished. Okay, that sounds pretty compelling. Or maybe they're entering into a new business and or they're launching a new product and they need the system in by then. You know, we really, or it might be like, oh, just that we have this old system, it's not performing that well and we thought we'd get something better. That's an alarm, right? Then we want to really ask, what happens if you do nothing? There's a lot of work to do in the beginning to understand the end game, really qualify that end game, put that stake in the ground. And if that's solid, then we can start working with the customer. We can start working back. Okay, if you need that in by February, you'll need to place a PO by January the 5th, say. And then there's going to be some negotiations and commercials. How long will that take? Okay, that might be somewhere in December. Then you're going to have to do build a business case before then, a proof of concept, some demo, some proposal at some point. And then we can start working with the customer and mapping out with them and agreeing with them on the steps. And this is where we should be at least equal with the customer. This is where we should be experienced enough with running these projects, with running these deals, with getting these decisions made in large, complex organizations, negotiating buying committees and so forth, running discovery workshops, you know, whatever it is we do, and starting to lead the customer and helping the customer and giving them a lot of confidence that we know what we're doing. So start with the end and work back. I think that's a fantastic bit of advice, incidentally. Pay heed. 
Because if you don't work backwards, then chances are your expectations and their expectations will be mismatched. And we just and keep chasing forever, right? We're chasing a ghost that just keeps moving from month to month, from quarter to quarter. Absolutely. The, the one thing I would add is what benefit are they looking for and how will they measure it? Because too often people don't ask that question. If you don't understand how it's going to be measured, then you can't build the business case that they need to sell it internally. And uh, your proposition won't be very compelling. There are some questions that you might want to ask along the way. So, for example, how many people are impacted by the problem or the situation that they find themselves? What are the hard and soft costs associated with it? What have you attempted to do about it? What's the worst that could do nothing or you pick the wrong solution? And too often, salespeople are afraid to ask these tough questions. But there's a really simple solution to that. Ask permission at the beginning of your conversation to ask tough, uncomfortable, challenging, demanding questions. If you get that permission, then you can ask anything. But too often, salespeople are afraid of that because earlier on, I said that there was too much attachment. They want to be liked. They don't want to appear to be salesy. Well, your job is to challenge them. They're not going to come to you and treat you as anything other than a commodity provider if you don't lead. And sales uh, selling is leadership. They're coming to us for leadership and a safe pair of hands. They want a trusted advisor. And I know it's cliched and hackneyed, but the reality is they do. You need to be the expert in the intersection between where your, where your proposition touches their business. Yeah, they will understand the inner workings of their business better than you. But if you are not the expert on how what you do can impact them and how other people and their marketplace is affected, then they're not going to spend big bucks with you. They're going to treat you like the commodity you deserve to be. And when that's the case, then you're going to find yourself in long, uneventful sales cycles that end up in no decision. Like we used to sell... And a lot of people, you know, they made a living selling based on their relationships and having great knowledge of products. And customers were hungry to see their salesperson and get their product information. And uh, we all know that situation's drastically changed. And we really need to be making that transition to be industry experts and experts on how to buy these solutions and justify them and uh, get, get those decisions made. Well, this comes to the point that you made when we were prepping for this call, that selling should offer strategic advantage to the customer. Talk to me about that. Yeah, so I think sales as a function should offer strategic advantage to companies. So long gone are the days where we could rely on product differentiation or service differentiation. If we have any differentiation, it's actually quite transient. We know Markets are just so much more competitive and commoditized, and customers just see a sea of sameness out there, and they can solve their business problems in lots of different ways. For CEOs out there, for anyone running a channel business or even a vendor, you should really think about having a fully professional, high-quality sales function and using that as your strategic differentiator. And this is what will make the difference when your team is sitting in front of a customer and the salesperson can become 
a strategic differentiator for the customer and help the customer solve a real business problem that helps that customer look good, meet their goals, and take their company to the next level. That's almost like a minimum now. Like that's where we're going to. Anyone not doing that, their roles will disappear. They just won't be able to uh, to justify their existence. Uh, we well, this really raises, need to, to that level. This raises another really interesting question because as recession bites, most organizations will cut a number of functions, sales, marketing, and recruitment. And those are the three functions you need the most. And training, of course, as well. How can, how can I forget that one? Absolutely. Um, now, those four functions are the ones that you should be investing in most when you're going into a downturn. If you're hitting the skids, that's where you need to spend your money, not on cost cutting. I know it sounds self-serving, and perhaps it is, but the reality is that if you are approaching your difficult times by cutting your business to the bone, then chances are you're going to be missing a massive opportunity. Now is the time to develop your best talent. Now, what you might do is you might get rid of your bottom 80% of your salespeople because they only bring in 20% of your business and 80% of your worst customers. Concentrate your energy on recruiting top talent. Make sure you're developing that top talent because they are the people who own your best accounts. Never, ever let them get stale. Make sure that they feel valued. Make sure that you're investing in them and getting them to be better um, yes. so they will not leave. Make sure that you're investing heavily in marketing. During the Second World War, Bourneville cut advertising. Cadbury's carried on advertising, despite the fact that there was very little milk, there was no sugar, and there was no cocoa. Mm -hmm. When they came out of the Second World War, Cadbury's dominated the market, and Bourneville had about 4%. Yes. So get smart about these things and use the opportunity of a downturn to develop your strategic advantage. Now, I'm conscious that we're coming to the top of the hour and I don't want to overstay my welcome. Is there anything else that you'd like to add to that before we start wrapping up? Just to add to that, salespeople need to take that on board as well and make themselves as valuable as possible. I got laid off from a sales job in the early 90s before I went to Dell and it was such a shocking thing to happen. And it was a real turning point for me. From that moment, I said, I never want to have this happen again. I want to make myself valuable. So I've always got options. And I was determined from that day forward just to work very hard on my, my selling skills. And I've maintained that for 30 years, pretty much. Great uh, advice. Almost every day studying some part. This is uh, a huge field. And you can spend a lifetime mastering this. So I really encourage everyone, invest in yourself, make yourself recession-proof, make yourself valuable. Fantastic advice. So I also learned that lesson very early on. So since the age of 23, there hasn't been a day gone by where I haven't done between one and six hours of study. Sales is a profession like accountancy, like the legal profession, like doctors. And tell me this, if your doctor, the last time they looked at a book was 30 years ago, how confident would you be? You'd be very worried. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, <laughs> what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, get some leeches on you. I'm sure leeches will help your <laughs> ailment. Think like somebody who is, an, or be an aggressive learner. Learn something every day. Capture the lessons from your failures. 
One of the lessons that I learned along the way was that my failures were my best teacher. The crap that happens to me today will pay off tomorrow if I bother to learn from it. But the problem is very few people do that and they're doomed to repeat the same mistakes. So have a failure log. And if you're managing a sales team, punish people for hiding their failures, encourage them to confess them and admit to them so that you can do something about it. If someone hides a failure, that I think is a personality defect. Sure. That's a lack of vulnerability that's being a toxic environment. Get out of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Who's influencing you at the moment in terms of blogs, books, audios, podcasts? I've been going down a, I sort of go into like a stream of uh, a topic and I get quite deep on that. So for the last few months, I've been really thinking about sales psychology and going quite deep on that. There's a book by a a UK lady, Helen Kensett, called Sales Mind that I think really great, very easy read. It's a really interesting small format book, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. Very good, yep. Yeah, is really great. A recent guest of yours, Larry Levine, selling you know, selling Larry. the heart. And yep. it really adds something extra to me because my approach to sales and management and, and my background lends itself much more to very structured, detailed, sort of more numbers and, and, and data and everything. and. This other angle, the, the softer angle or the, the psychology angle, is really adding something to me. So uh, I'm still learning, still learning from that. Two good books that I think you'll enjoy. The Art and Skill of Sales Psychology, Why Buyers and Sellers Do What They okay. Do by Brad Donald, really looks at the transaction analysis in sales. And I've mentioned it many, many times before on my podcast, but I cannot recommend it highly enough. It's Just Listened by Mark Goldston. It is the must-read book. If you are book-averse and you only read one book in your lifetime, this is the book. Just Listen by Dr. Mark Goulston, G-O-U-L-S-T-O-N. Okay. The other thing that I've just come across, Dave Brock put me onto this, is FS Blog, Farnham Street Blog, and that's all about sales psychology. It's all about psychology. It's fascinating. You won't be able to keep up. There's about 300,000 hours of great content on there and everyone a gem. Steve, tell me this. If you had a golden ticket and you could go back in time and advise the idiot 23-year-old Steve how to avoid a lifetime of misery and mm-hmm. uh, cock-ups, what would you advise him to do? Look, I think it's really important to be yourself. And uh, you know, when you're younger, you're not really sure about that. And I know I spent you know, a lot of my career maybe trying to emulate or trying to look like or act like who I thought you should be like as a sales professional or as a sales manager or a leader. And um, a lot of them were from a, another generation and, and it, was, it was very much more hard-edged, a bit impersonal, a bit direct, you know, that, that, that sort of style. And, you know, I realized after a while to just be myself and – I really clicked into gear when I did that. I saw a big difference. So be true to yourself, be honest, let the chips fall where they may with that. Like we said before, if you're in a toxic environment and you can't do that, get out of it. I've definitely seen that where people are too afraid to be themselves or to admit they've got a problem or a weakness or they've screwed something up. Have you come across the winner's triangle? No. Okay. 
The Willis Triangle is a wonderfully elegant model to allow, to encourage and to enable you to be authentic. The Drama Triangle is made up, and the, the Drama Triangle describes every broken, dysfunctional, dissatisfying relationship you can right. or will ever have on three points of a triangle. So on the sharp point pointing down is the victim. The victim voice is, why me? This is so unfair. This always happens. Save me. And then you have the persecutor who comes with a jabby index finger and the pronoun you in capital letters with the critical parent voice saying, you piece of shit, you always, you never, you're right. such a disappointment. And then you have the rescuer and rescuers help without boundaries or permission. They tolerate non-performance. They are mollycoddling, they're permissive. And because they help without boundaries or permission, they uh, resent it. And going around that describes pretty much, much most dysfunctional families, yours and mine, mm. and everyone you know. And Bruce Lee, my favorite philosopher, was asked, what's the best way to avoid a punch? And he said, be somewhere else. <laughs> the, the somewhere else is the winner's triangle. So it's on right. its flat base. Instead Good of being the victim, bottom, yeah. in the bottom left-hand corner, you have vulnerable. Now, vulnerable comes from the Latin word vulnerabilis, and it means to make yourself woundable, put yourself in harm's way, and do it anyway. It's an act of courage. The bottom right is assertive instead of aggressive or persecuting. So it's where you can draw a line in the sand and say, this is the line, do not cross it. Mm. Okay, And then the top point is nurturing and empathic. So if I'm running late, if I'm operating from the drama triangle, I'll say, Steve, it's not my fault. The bloody traffic sat nav. You know, I was doing my best. Okay. And that comes across as being whiny, blamey, inauthentic. Yes. On the other hand, if I operate from the winner's triangle, I can say, Steve, I am so sorry. It's entirely my fault. Left too late. I misjudged the traffic and the roadworks. As a result, I'm going to be late. And I know that you're busy. If you like, I can turn around and I'll talk this up to experience and I hope you can forgive me. Now, what's really interesting is that that's authentic. It's real. And people always forgive you because you've been honest yeah. and because you've been authentic. And that bit of advice about being yourself, if you operate from that winner's triangle, and it is really difficult when you are attached to the outcome, when you're attached to how other people will see mm. you, you're attached to not being seen as salesy or anything else. That's a trap that draws you into that drama triangle, that takes you above the line, if you like. So stay below the line and operate from vulnerable, nurturing, and assertive. And if you operate from there, then you're always out of range of the punch. You never get sucked into psychological gameplay. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And my experience is the more open you are, more vulnerable, more honest, people respond well to it. Absolutely. So don't be afraid. Steve, thank you. This has been a really fascinating conversation. And tell me something, how can people get hold of you? Well, you can check me out at growthacumen.com.au. A lot of uh, great content on sales there. I'm also on LinkedIn. So look me up, Stephen Norman in Sydney, Australia. And uh, look forward, you know, please connect with me and uh, engage with me. I also have the, the pop, my own podcast, Future Proof Selling, the Future Proof Selling podcast. So check that out. There's as well. a fantastic one on channel sales on there. <laughs> oh, absolutely. There's two interviews with Marcus that uh, they got a fantastic response. So, um, yeah. All for, those of you, there. for those of you looking Steve up, uh, it's Stephen with a V, not a PH. Steve, thank you very much. This has been a real pleasure. 
So that's Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. If you know someone that you would really like me to interview, then please recommend them to me, connect us on LinkedIn. And if you're somebody who'd like to come on the podcast, please do. Now, for those of you who are interested, my partner in crime, David Davies and I, are, have launched the Making Channel Sales Work training program that accompanies the book. So if you're interested in building a powerful international channel to drive hyper growth internationally, then do please get in touch with us via direct message on LinkedIn. And you can find out more with uh, doing our first bootcamp on Monday next week, Monday and Tuesday next week. That we do have a couple of places left, but actually you'll have missed it by the time this goes out. So let me scrub that. Um, so that's Marcus Kauke signing off. And thanks again. Look forward to listening, uh, speaking to you soon. Happy selling. Bye-bye.